Welcome back to the Be a Better Ally podcast. On today, we have EAL specialist Kanako Sua. Kanako is going to continue our summer series where we're looking at the ways that educators can transform what sometimes is referred to as a difficult conversation to a necessary one. Hi, my name is Kanako Sua. Um, I'm 25. I am a uh, EAL specialist at an international school in Vietnam. My pronouns are um, she, her, hers, and I'm originally from Japan, but I identify as a third culture kid, meaning um, I grew up in different places around the world before I went off to university in the States. Great. And I am so happy to have you on this podcast. Um, the summer series is, is sort of trying to look at what we typically hear as, as too political, too difficult, too hard to talk about. Um, and this mm -hmm. podcast focuses on LGBTQ plus issues. And at least in my career, I've experienced people are sort of like, oh, can, you know, can we even talk about that? And hopefully these, these series of conversations will get people to realize it's, it's really not enough anymore for us to say it's too difficult. It has to, I think, become too necessary. Mm -hmm. So um, when you think way back to your life as a student, and I'm thinking mm -hmm. like primary, middle, high school, can you remember yeah. anything um, you know, about being taught how to engage in topics that, again, fall under that label of being too difficult um, or, or too hard? Do you have any early lessons of remembering um, how you're supposed to navigate that? You know, in all honesty, like growing up in Japan and Taiwan, having difficult conversations really wasn't a part of my life. Um, in Japan and just in general, uh, in Asia in general, there's a stigma that, you know, children are too young to engage in difficult conversations, whether that's um, topics surrounding mental health or LGBTQ issues, which are both topics that I needed looking back. Those are things that I needed to talk about as a child, um, but we, we never did. And it was just kind of ignored and, and not present in our lives. And that's, it's really interesting because it's funny, every guest that I've had on with that question will often think, you know, it's because of the era that they grow, grew up in or it being cultural. Mm -hmm. But so far, everybody that I've, I've spoken with has said, you know, no, we just, we really, there wasn't any kind of training or any consideration given to why children would need that. And I'm wondering mm -hmm. when you then moved into your training or, or even, um, you know, as an EAL specialist, do you feel like you've engaged with any training as an educator that has given you those skills or focused, um, you know, I think if you work in education, it's inevitable that you're going to have to talk about things that are hard that, you know, some people that happens daily or multiple times in a day. Uh, do you, do you mm -hmm. think that as sort of an adult learner, you, you've had any training around that? Uh, yeah, we most definitely did. So I did my undergrad training at Boston University where Martin Luther King Jr. went to the, the graduate school of theology there. And so um, having difficult conversations and talking about race and inequities and um, racism and we did have uh, a, a few courses in my education classes where we looked at the demographics of schools. Um, 
we I had a course where uh, we looked at um, where we read the book Why Are All the Black Kids Sitting Together mm. by Beverly Daniel Tatum. Um, and that was really, so I took that my second year of university. And that was really the first time I thought about um, the racial differences that are so prevalent in the States. Because again, growing up in Asia, the, the hierarchy and the difference in privilege between Black people and white people wasn't something that was really close to me. Mm. And then um, I majored in bilingual education as well. And so many of my third and fourth year classes touched on the margin, the marginalization of non-native English speakers and immigrants. Mm -hmm. Um, So yeah, those courses definitely um, prepared me for that. Um, And then in 2016, 2017, I was student teaching in East Boston and I had a class full of immigrants. And that was the year Trump was elected and his inauguration was in in January. And going to school the day after his election was really difficult. Mm -hmm. Um, Some of the kids were, I mean, many were immigrants, some were undocumented, um, some were in the process of getting their papers and there was just a lot of fear and uncertainty among the kids that I was teaching. The, the grade four kids, there were there were 10 year olds, you know? And so it was really heartbreaking for me to see that. And, and it really forced me to look at how political leadership and the decisions that we we and and the leadership makes really impact our kids. Yeah, and I'm wondering if you had a sense um... I was in Singapore at the time, and so the mm-hmm. the news that he was elected came in, I think that was right around noon for, for us, <clears throat> and mm-hmm. a, a lot of the people that I worked with had the same political slant, and so there was sort of this sense of just collective disbelief and grief and yeah. this deep, deep sadness, um, and that, that I think that kind of visible emotion made it a little bit easier for teachers to talk about with one another, but I, I, I'm originally from the States as well. And I know some, at mm-hmm. some schools, you know, it's, it's against the law to actually share your political. <clears throat> so I'm wondering if you had a sense at that time of how your colleagues felt, or if it was something that you talked about with your peers. Um, yeah. So the teacher that was, that I was mentoring, um, no, that I was working with, um, he was very careful not to share his political views because again, I mean, it's a public school, so I don't know what the, um, what the policy is for sharing your political views with them, with the students, but the kids were upset. Uh, we, we had some parents come in, um, upset and also scared that they were going to be taken away. Um, and it was, sort of an irrational fear for the day after he, he, um, he won the election because it was, I mean, he still, he wasn't mm-hmm. in office yet. Um, but we, we definitely understood where the fear came from. And so, um, 
if I remember it correctly, I think we started that that morning with you know a circle time, just sitting down and 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 asking the kids how they felt and what their worries were. Um, and then we just we just had to make it clear to them that no matter what happens politically, that um, we as teachers and as the school um, was that the school was going to be a welcoming place for everyone. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, it, um, looking back, it's hard. It, it it is, and you know, it reminds me that when we talk about the need for teachers to be able to have, you know, emotionally loaded conversations like that, you know, I I think Mm -hmm. what you reminded me of here is they also need to be able to do it sometimes without a lot of planning time or without a lot of notice. And that's, that's also the reality that you don't always have time to prepare for a conversation like that. Yeah. um, I think living in Boston, Uh, I lived, you know, five minutes away from the Finley Park, which is in the middle of the city. I think we kind of lived in a bubble where we didn't think the election was going to turn out the way it did and that that we didn't think we were going to have to have these difficult conversations. Um, I'm wondering, and and maybe that conversation is is one of them, but if, if you left the field of education tomorrow, as you look back mm-hmm. at, at your, your work in this field, would you be able to identify what you think has been for you personally sort of the most profound, difficult conversation? Yeah, um, yeah, so that was definitely one of them. But also that same year we celebrated uh, Immigrant Pride Week, which I think was sometime in May. And we marched around the neighborhood chanting you know everyone is welcome here in different languages and uh, some of our students who had just immigrated and who was new to the school wanted to share their story of immigration with us Mm -hmm. and um, some of them talked about crossing the border on foot and you know giving up their food so that their younger siblings can have enough to eat and it was it was difficult to hear and and I didn't really know how to respond um so it wasn't so much of me facilitating a discussion but like listening to it and and knowing how to respond to show support I think um was one of um the conversations where I realized like I, I needed to be ready to have these conversations. So for incoming generations of educators, you know, mm-hmm. how, because I think, I still think there's a little bit of, um, I don't know if it's a, a misconception uh, or just maybe sort of, you know, I, I think sometimes we, we paint a picture of working in schools you know, I feel like any movie or any TV show that tries to demonstrate what it means to be a teacher, mm-hmm. like always falls short. And perhaps that's true of, of almost mm-hmm. any, any profession. But for someone who is thinking, this is the, the track that I want to get on. I think that I, I would love to work in education. Do you have any advice 
for them in terms of seeing that, you know, this is going to be part of the job um, and, uh, you know, any advice in terms of what they might want to think about in terms of what that means for whether or not they want to continue on that path? Just learning to be vulnerable with your students and, and your colleagues. Um, and I think it's, it's okay sometimes to admit um, that you're not ready for a conversation. Um, maybe it's, maybe you're emotionally not ready, or maybe you feel like you don't have enough information to facilitate a discussion about it. I think, um, I think acknowledging that when you're not ready, but you are willing to put in the effort to be able to have those conversations. Um, I think one of the most important things that you need to remember. Mm, and uh, you know what I what I love about that is it also I think reminds us to have some intellectual humility. Um, and mm -hmm. and I, I also think you know sometimes the person on the other end of that feels a real sense of urgency, like we do have to talk about this and you know it's important and i think your response there is so powerful because it's not negating its importance but it's saying yes but you know this might not be the right time or yeah recognize that people are, are bringing different emotions to the table and you know maybe let them do a little processing time first i i, I really love that suggestion um yeah and I think, uh, especially, I'm thinking about you know working at international schools in particular, and how um, with every new country that you live in, there's gonna be new things that you have to learn about that country, right? I think um, part of being working at an international school is acknowledging problems that are happening in home countries, but also um issues that need to be discussed about the host country and i I'm, i've been in vietnam for three years and i can't say that i know a whole lot about um you know social issues that uh need to be talked about in regards to vietnam and so you know if something big happens here that i'd want to address with my students i think it's going to take me a little bit of time to um learn about what's happening, learn how to talk about it, and try to facilitate that conversation. You know, being an EAL specialist, I think that comes yeah. with, I, you know, I, I'm thinking back to when I first started teaching at an international school in China, and, and this is going mm -hmm. back to like uh, 2001 or 2002, and that mm -hmm. was a time when it was still normal to hear you know people sort of say english only in the hallways and you mm -hmm. know, kind of make you know that horrible <laughs> statement and i i don't know that many schools are doing that anymore i think there has been kind of a reconciliation with how horrible that is i'm, I'm not sure but I'm, mm -hmm. I'm wondering if the nature of your work specifically um leans itself to needing to have that I don't know if it's more of a flexible stance or if it's built in with a different level of empathy, just sometimes because I think EAL, uh, EAL students are underestimated. Um, I know that some schools also mm -hmm. will, at international schools, will, will charge an additional fee for EAL students, which 
I think is kind of strange too, because if I, <laughs> if I need extra math help, you know, that we don't, we don't ask students to pay for that. So I don't yeah. know, anything specific to your, to your role that. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's interesting you say that because, um, when I first started at my current school, we had teachers, um, it wasn't a school-wide policy, but we still had individual teachers who were encouraging uh, English only in the classroom. Mm. And it really created a, I don't, it turned, it, it got to a point where kids were um, kind of reporting uh, accidental use of other languages in the classroom to the teacher. Um, and it just created a, a bad atmosphere or bad learning environment in the classroom. Mm. And then, uh, so that was my first year. My second year, our school um, started adopting the PYP framework um, for the IB, which mm -hmm. encourages translanguaging. It encourages the use of uh, home languages in the classroom. And that was a shift that teachers needed to go through and the students also because they'd spent you know the first couple of years of their educational career being told english only and now we were saying oh actually like try to use vietnamese because i think it'll be helpful and mm -hmm. and to 10 year olds who were told for the last three years not to use vietnamese it was, I think it was a change in mindset for everybody. And we've been, um, we've been adopting the PYP for two years now. And I think we're kind of on our way where the kids recognize that their first language is an asset and a resource. Um, but we've still got uh, a little ways to go until, until that becomes the norm for the mm -hmm. students, I think. Well, and, and I love that you describe that as sort of a, a shift both for teachers and students. And I'm wondering, in order for shifts like that to happen, I think it's important for us to be aware of some of the, the either the obstacles or the structures in school, or even, you know, just some of the, the habits or the way of, of working together or communicating with one another that hold us back from the conversations that lead to those shifts. So have you experienced anything else that you think, you know, especially as, as teachers, just thinking about our own shifts that we need to go to, are there any other things that you think sort of hold us back from having more um, moments of, of unlearning and rethinking? Yeah, um, so, you know, the conversation surrounding language was kind of easier to start and facilitate because it was a, a whole school approach, right? Whereas, um, you know, right, like I, I'm very passionate about LGBTQ topics and inclusion and support in schools and, and about mental health, because those are the things that, you know, I wanted to talk about growing up. But right now, I hesitate to speak about those topics, because, um, I mean, for a couple of reasons, one being like, I don't know what the, the parent perception is. Um, so if I were to have a conversation or, you know, if I were to share, um, if I were to share with my kids that I'm a bisexual woman, 
and then they go home and tell their parents how, what would the response be like mm-hmm. and i and then i think part of it is living in vietnam and working at a school where the majority of our families are from vietnam and so you know culturally i don't know what's acceptable to talk about without the parents you know being able to have those conversations with their kids first yeah you know that that's really interesting because <laughs> i i think i i've had this conversation with administrators that i've worked with before um mm-hmm. you know just in terms of i i gave a talk a few years ago about how we never really talk about LGBTQ <laughs> issues in, in international schools. There is sort of this big just void of, of silence and that often mm-hmm. a lot of queer members of staff need to keep it to themselves, have, as you just mentioned, mm-hmm. that uncertainty of will I be protected? Um, and so, you know, one of my members of my leadership team at the time came to me after and just said, I, you know, I'm so sorry that I, I never asked you more, you know, like what, what else do you think that we should, should be discussing or thinking about mm-hmm. in terms of our, our hiring process? Like, what are some of the things that you, that you wish that I would have known? And I said, honestly, I think just a very important baseline is, will I be protected? Because, mm-hmm. you know, that, that parental piece, as you said, is, is huge. And I think, um, you know, to be honest with you, times when I have had maybe a parental issue, uh, and I've worked in countries where it is illegal to be gay, and the interesting thing there is it's never been sort of um, a person from that host country that's taken issues. To be honest, it's, it's often mm-hmm. been someone from my host country, uh, you know, from, from the oh, U.S. Oh, interesting. So, you know, even, even just the complexity of maybe, you know, we have maybe some assumptions about where the, the pushback would come from, but it might not come from there. It could come from anywhere. So, you know, will I, will yeah. I be protected is, is a really, really important one. And then, you know, you mentioned that you're an IB school and I'd be willing to bet your school mission has something in there about globally minded or, you know, yes. internationalism uh, and, and yes. that piece too about, okay, when we use these words, to what extent do we, do we actually use these words and at what uh-huh. depth are we going to teach about the history of, of all people? I mean, I'm wondering if you have mm-hmm. a sense from other subject areas, um, you know, is any LGBTQ plus history brought up or uh, do you have a sense um, with your staff if other people, uh, if, if these conversations are happening or not happening? It's not happening. Um at the elementary i don't know what it's like at the secondary level um but at the elementary level um i i don't know that uh the conversations about lgbtq or even about race to be honest i don't know that um it's it's happening um one of my colleagues tried to push for um you know doing a little bit of lessons during uh, i think in february for black history month mm-hmm. And, uh, yeah, their idea was kind of shut down. It was kind of, you know, well, why do our kids need to learn about it? Because, mm-hmm. um, you know, we don't have black kids at our school. It's not really relevant to our Vietnamese kids. Um, and I think 
working uh working abroad working away from the united states kind of gives us like the false sense of security and makes us feel like racism doesn't exist in our schools um which isn't always true um and even if you're lucky enough to work at a school where um diversity in all sense is accepted and encouraged um i think i think if we're wanting our students to be global minded and you know being global leaders after graduation and in the future um then i think we need to be having these conversations with our kids just so they're ready when they leave our school i think i think your example there about kind of the oh uh, this is about another place or this example doesn't yeah. apply to us um, it also just makes me realize, I think sometimes, you know, and if we're talking about race or bias or homophobia or transphobia, I, I think it's almost useful to, you know, like have the list out of the typical kind mm -hmm. of excuses that, that you will hear. And as you mentioned, you know, there is a, a lot of fear around having these conversations. And I think being ready for the excuses is really valuable. Um, there's, I'll, I'll link to it in the show notes. There's a really great resource about, uh, it's the common myths around teaching about homophobia. And I, I think that's mm -hmm. one of, that's, that's kind of one of them is the, oh, well, certainly we, you know, we don't have anybody who's homophobic at our campus, so we don't need to, we don't need to teach about it. And I, mm -hmm. I would be, I mean, I don't know. I, I don't think that there is a school campus in the world where you have this perfect harmony and you don't have any any kind of um, issues of, of bullying around difference. Yeah. I, I just, I, I do think it exists everywhere. But that's an, it's an interesting, I don't know. It, it's an interesting um, thought just in terms of what are the excuses that teachers are going to come across, not even necessarily with their parents or, you know, unfortunately it's, it's maybe the board, but even just with their mm -hmm. colleagues. Um, yeah, I think um, right now, you know, having, so not having as much diversity in the staff, I guess kind of gives you an excuse to say, you know, this isn't relevant to us or or for people to say well this isn't something that i know about personally so mm. i can't speak about it but then there are no other teachers who can speak to it so let's just not talk about it you know so yeah i don't know so in in the year to come uh, you know i i think it, it's going to probably come up for you again that you you know you're passionate about mental health you're passionate about lgbtq plus issues um and i, I think conversations about racism you know I, I feel like the world is showing us we can't continue to avoid talking about this mm -hmm. do you have any thoughts and i'm you know apologies it's your summer break but do you have any thoughts on on next year and are you thinking about any different approaches or strategies uh yeah so something that um i would like to do um as an eal teacher and also just as a so i love to read i'm a very um, avid reader and so something that i like to do um is to start talking about these 
these uh, so-called difficult topics um, and using using uh, children's books as mentor texts and and seeing what kind of um, discussions evolve from that. Um, I honest I, I've had several conversations with my students um, about you know how to support your friend when they're sad or um, I don't know kids are very intuitive and um, they don't hesitate to ask you when you are you know upset or I'd take like a mental health day um, and not be in school and so when I come back to work they'll they'll straight up ask me like why was why weren't you at school yesterday um, and I've in the last couple of months of school I've been I've been learning to be vulnerable with kids um, it started over distance learning because um, I wanted the, I, I know that the kids were upset about being home, maybe feeling a little bit lonely. Um, my mental health wasn't great during distance learning because we were essentially on lockdown and I didn't, I lived by myself and so I didn't see a lot of people except, um, on Google Hangouts. And so when we did our daily check-ins, I started to tell them, you know, um, guys, like I'm feeling, I'm feeling a little bit sad today. I'm feeling a little bit lonely. Um, and so we just started having conversations about what we can do if, if our friend is upset or sad or nervous or anxious and having, um, a little bit of like a negative feeling. Um, and we kind of continued that once we were back on campus, uh, last month. And so I'm hoping that that's something that I can continue. And I'm, I'm not quite comfortable having or facilitating like a whole class discussion just yet. Um, but I've been having these conversations with different groups of kids. Um, so I guess small, small steps. Yeah. And you know, your point about using children's lit, I think, is a great one, uh, and and my my wife is a primary school teacher, and mm -hmm. she she and I sort of you know look at you know like the amazing world of children's literature that is there today that definitely was not there when I was a kid, and mm -hmm. you know especially with the PYP program, how easy it is to take that concept based approach and be you know we're having a conversation mm -hmm. about identity. You know, here are yeah. lots of different intersections of identity. We're talking about family and community. You know, it is these concepts that, of course, we teach young children about. And I loved a phrase that you just used when you said, I'm learning to be vulnerable with children. And I'm mm -hmm. thinking, that is a huge gap, actually, in teacher training that I can't really think ever comes up yet is wildly important. And we do hear this phrase all the time of, you know, relationships are crucial. We need to build great relationships with students. H how do you do that if you don't know how to be vulnerable with them? And so I'm wondering if you have any advice, you know, did you have sort of a, an aha moment around how you could get better at that? Or, you know, are there any other resources that you've been explored, exploring that have really um, 
influence the way that you are thinking about developing kind of a, a vulnerable nature or just a capacity for vulnerability in the classroom? Um, it, it started with, um, with a student of mine who was going through a hard time and um, I sat down with her one day and I said, hey, you seem a little bit sad today. What's going on? And she said, I don't know. I'm just, I'm just sad. And so, um, you know, I kind of saw that as an opportunity to be like, you know, sometimes I get sad for no reason like you do. Um, and then what I, I anticipated this conversation to be just between me and this kid but our friends walked in um, because it was time to go to recess and they were like, oh, what are you guys talking about? And so it kind of, I, it, was, it was totally unplanned. Um, and so I can't say that I really have advice on like how to get that, how to plan for it. Um, but, you know, it ended up being a really good conversation where we, I said, you know, this, like, your friend and I sometimes feel a little bit sad. What are some things that you think you can do to help? And that, that kind of kick-started that conversation. And then those kids, um, you know, every once in a while would ask me, like, Miss Kanako, how are you feeling today? Are you sad? Um, and so I think just setting an example, um, Obviously, you know, knowing your kids and um, if you see an opportunity for conversations like that, um, don't, don't hesitate to, to, to take that opportunity. Um, yeah, so I've just been turning to Twitter um, to see how people are facilitating these conversations with kids and how... Um, I sometimes look up like, you know, relationship with students or whatever. And um, I've just kind of been trying little things that I see on there, whether that's, you know, uh, emotional check-ins or uh, circle time or just any strategy that I think might work. Um, it's sort of trial and error for me right now. Mm. Yeah, that, that's interesting. And it also makes me realize, though, sometimes schools might have that structure. You know, I'm, I'm thinking there are schools where there is kind of like the mandatory mentor time in the morning or, you know, morning mm -hmm. meeting is, is kind of that's that's just like the culture of the school. But what you're talking about to me also seems to be almost like a, a level up from just having the time where kids know that authentically you mean it because I think, mm -hmm. you know, even just when you were sharing that conversation or that, you know, asking how you're doing, I think we, we all know those times that we've been asked that question and we know the other person doesn't really want to know. Um, you know, <laughs> yep. and, you know, as you said, kids are really smart. They're very intuitive. And so I'm wondering, are you able to, because I'm getting the sense from you that your students really know and are aware that when you're asking that you mean it. And mm -hmm. I, I know this is maybe a, I don't know, it's a, it's a difficult thing to put your finger on, but are you able to identify anything that has enabled your students to see that authentic care? Um, 
Yeah, I I try to, you know, so as an EAL teacher, I work with three different classrooms. And so, you know, I only get to spend a third of my day with each of the classes. Um, and so I do, you know, if I have a free minute or if, you know, it's transition time and I have time to be in the hallway, I, I try to be present. I, I try to make sure that the kids see me. I try to make sure um, that I ask how they're doing. And, and obviously, you know, not everybody has, um, not everybody has something they want to share when I ask them how they're doing. Um, but I, um, unexpected conversations have happened from me just saying, hey, what's up? Or, hey, are you good? Um, and so I just see value in like checking in. Um, and whether the kids share something with me or not, that's totally up to them. It's, it's their choice. And if they don't, I'm not offended. Um, I just, maybe I do like an excessive check-in um, just so they know that I'm here if they ever want to talk. Well, I think if you know ever there was a year that we needed excessive check-ins, I think this was <laughs> this was maybe the year that that really warranted them. Um, yeah. So you know, n next year as you're preparing, I, you know, I think next year those conversations around mental health are going to continue to be just really, really important. Um, and I'm wondering, mm -hmm. you know, I, I think, uh, you know, and as you mentioned, you're often working in concert with other teachers. Uh, mm -hmm. Are there any other conversations that you're hoping to have with your peers around the way that we make space for, for mental health? And, you know, I'm saying that and realizing so many schools often will talk about well-being and wellness, but it's, you know, again, mm -hmm. when we talk about that, what do we really mean? Um, yeah. Um, so we, we actually left, our last week of school um, was the, the week of June 5th, and we didn't actually have a lot of time to talk to the kids about what's been going on in the States. Um, because that was, I think, I think that week was the first week the protests were starting up in the States. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, end of the school and, and uh, news reaching us. Um, we didn't really have a chance to talk about it. And I'm actually kind of worried about what they, what information they're exposed to over the summer uh, right now without having us to talk to about. Mm. Um and so I think, um, I think something that I'm going to bring to my co-teachers uh, before the school year begins um, in about a month or so um, is just spending that first week back at school, um, really focusing on, on connecting with the kids and checking in and finding out what they know and if um, if a conversation has to happen, then then we have to be ready for that. Mm. Mm. And that's, you know, a simple but profound thing. I think sometimes we make the assumption that our kids are receiving similar messages from the media and, mm -hmm. you know, or I, I just think you know, we can't make that 
assumption or even, I mean, two people can listen to the same story, but as you said, depending on who you're listening to that with, the conversation is perhaps going to go in a really different, really different direction. Yeah. And, and having, you know, I think, so I'm, I'm thinking of in particular my like grade four students. Um, so they're about what, nine, 10, 11 years old. And, and I'm thinking about where they get their information and it's mostly either through social media or, um, probably from their parents, but chance, um, not a lot of our parents speak English. And so they're getting news from the Vietnamese local media. And I don't know how the Vietnamese local media paints what's happening around the world. Mm-hmm. And so, and then obviously, you know, information you get on social media, um, it's, there's a wide range of information. And I don't think we've taught enough uh, media literacy to our kids that they know uh, which information can be trusted and which can't be. Um, and so I'm, I'm, I'm genuinely curious right now to see what information the kids have been exposed to. Yeah. And, you know, I, I think that's another, you mentioned earlier, just the idea of, you know, sometimes it's the teachers struggle with this. So if the teachers struggle with it, how can the students struggle? How can the, the students kind of deal with it? And I think that media literacy piece has also changed so much for, for us as adults and, you know, some schools do a good job of, of saying, let's, you know, let's talk about media literacy and, you know, see how it applies to different subject areas and different concepts. But it's mm-hmm. so, it, you know, that, that landscape is changing all the time that unless you're doing ongoing unlearning and, and relearning, it's, it's easy to mm-hmm. get lost in it. And I'm even thinking just with the way that Black Lives Matter was covered, you know, it, even if you just looked at some headlines across papers, you know, instances mm-hmm. of either papers deciding to use, you know, riot or, you know, rioters versus yeah. and that those small language choices and how significant that is. Um, yeah. Um, and yeah, I just, there's so much on social media as well and you know like i i'm thinking in particular like the media apps that they use will be like instagram and tiktok mm-hmm. um and uh i don't know that i'd consider tiktok to be a good source of information um but obviously our kids wouldn't know that and they'll i think because they also are from Vietnam and, you know, probably have never like lived in the States. Um, I think they're just going to believe what they see on social media. So. Hmm. And it's, you know, it's interesting to think too, you know, I, I think I was a teenager in the nineties and I think had mm-hmm. I had social media in the nineties, the other piece is it's, it's interesting how, much the news is reflected in today's social media, even if it's social media looking at teens or preteens. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, you know, in the nineties, I don't think that's what <laughs> social media would have been <laughs> focusing on. So there, I think there is just also an understanding that kids are maybe engaging with 
current events in a way that, um, mm -hmm. yeah, you know, some teachers growing up maybe did not as much. But I, I kind of want to go back to something that you said earlier that I really appreciate that yeah. you said this, and I think it was really courageous of you to reference this, that, you know, even though you yourself identify as bisexual, you don't quite feel comfortable, like, leading that whole group conversation that is touching upon LGBTQ yeah. plus issues. And I'm really glad that you said that because I think sometimes there's an expectation that if you are, you know, one of the few people on staff who is not heterosexual, that it's like, well, you'll take care of that. Like, you'll have that conversation <laughs> with the kids. And yeah, you know, in, in many ways, um, of course, it's much harder for someone who identifies as LGBTQ plus to have that conversation in, in some ways, perhaps. Um, yeah, definitely. Um, for me, I wasn't, I didn't come out to my colleagues until this year. Um, and, and even still, um, I think uh, if they're not friends with me on social media, I don't think they know. Mm -hmm. And so um, while I appreciate people acknowledging my identity, um, I don't know that I know what to say if I was put in in front of kids who have questions you know mm -hmm. yeah I'm just I, I'm not there yet um, and I, I I want to be and I'm working on you know learning about the history of um of pride and the history of LGBTQ issues um and I'm learning um and I eventually want to get to a point where I do feel comfortable having conversations with, with the kids about that. Uh, I'm just not there yet. Well, and, and you know, I, I, I actually, you know, I, I think, you know, sometimes I see schools putting a lot of pressure either on teachers or students like, oh, you know, if you come out, look, you're so brave, like, thank you for doing that. And I always think, why is there that pressure on that individual? to quote unquote come out, like why aren't we recognizing that it is the school culture or the school community that makes that feel like, you know, it's full of risk or feel dangerous in a way. And I, I also think yeah. you know, it, it's interesting that I feel like you're giving yourself the short end of the stick by saying you aren't ready. I think it, it is also about, well, what's happening within the school that makes it feel organically safer or part of you know more of a, a cross-campus conversation because I think you know, I feel like um being bisexual is such a small part of the LGBTQ community that I don't want my experience to reflect um people who identify um other than bisexual you know mm -hmm. so um just, I think, an overall diversity um, in the staff. And so we can maybe, you know, like, form a committee to begin that conversation so that the responsibility doesn't fall on just one person. Yeah. And, you know, when it does, I, I just was having a, a conversation with a, a teacher who is looking to start up a, a GSA, a Gay Straight Alliance, at her school, mm -hmm. and, you know, she said that years and years ago, there was one, but 
that one teacher ran it and then that one teacher left and it appeared. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I, you know, I've heard that sort of situation multiple times and I think it is, you know, again, it's a, it's a, it's a real mistake that schools make when they just sort of say, oh, well, the, you know, this one person will, will have to be, you know, responsible for all of it because it's just, it's also not a sustainable model. And, you know, yeah. as, as an EAL teacher, you know, as well, if sort of language support's not built in across the curriculum, it's also not really going to do much to shift student learning. Yeah, uh, I like what you said about, um, you know, things being sustainable. Um, I think in order for these, so I don't want, if we were to have these difficult conversations, whether that's surrounding, you know, mental health, race, or LGBTQ, or, or disabilities, or anything else, I don't want it to be just a one-time conversation, right? I want it to be um, an ongoing dialogue, um, conversations that can start and um, finish at any point, And I want it to be something that is sustainable. And in order for that to happen, um, it can't just be, oh, well, you know, uh, the racial tensions in America is really high right now, so we're going to talk about it and then never, ever talk about it again. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, and your point earlier about when there is going to be a conversation that is hard for someone acknowledging what are some, what are the different emotional barriers different people are are having and how can we also approach Mm -hmm. the conversation so that there is that ebb and flow and you know people are able to engage and step away from it when they need to as well and and that you know it is Mm -hmm. kind of um it's an invitation that is aware of i guess like that human beings are having this conversation because you're right i think too often i see okay we're gonna have like a day or we will do a training and it's sort of like, okay, Mm -hmm. like tick done. We talked about it. It was spoken about, like there was an agenda that word was on that agenda for that day. Yeah. Uh, Do you, I'm wondering like, you know, again, since you work with a number of people, um, you have co-teachers or, you know, you're, you're working collaboratively as an EAL specialist. Do you have any, any thoughts next year about, maybe a, a unit that might make for a good, uh, you know, what I'm hearing from you is that your school really is sort of at almost like the pre-planning stage of getting ready to have that conversation. Mm-hmm. Uh, do you see any interesting starting places where you think like this would be a really good entryway in, or there's, you know, there's some, some footholds to, to begin a conversation here? Yeah. Um, one of our un- uh, one of our units, who we are um, for grade four, we've always focused on culture. And last year, we had a conversation about how we wanted to move away from um, looking at at what's visible, um, the visible aspect of culture, like food and clothing and language and stuff like that to the invisible aspect of culture that has more to do with like attitudes and, and beliefs and um, you know, the way of thinking and stuff like that. Um, 
we wanted to do that this year as well, but then we had to move to distance learning and, and it kind of made it a little bit difficult because we were scrambling to get distance learning going. Mm-hmm. Um, but I would like to bring that back into the discussion for next year um, because I think there's a lot of current events that we could talk about and relate it back to culture and how, you know, um, why do people respond a certain way to this particular issue or, uh, yeah, so I think that would be a good unit to begin a conversation. Um, I don't know what it, I don't know what it's going to look like because I've actually just recently started thinking about it and obviously haven't, you know, proposed it to my team, but, um, I think diving deeper into culture, uh, is something that I'd really like to do. Mm, that, you know, that sounds really interesting. And I think it, you know, that idea will really push away from more of a stereotypical notion of culture, you know, mm-hmm. and I, I feel like as a teacher who's worked in different international schools, I've been guilty of that as well. Like, oh, I'm getting ready to mm-hmm. move to this place. Like I will go to a Thai food restaurant and like that will somehow, mm-hmm. you know, like what insight does that give me and be the food at that Thai restaurant probably it's not really, you know, any, anything <laughs> like authentic Thai food anyway. So hey. I love that idea of kind of like the known or it's almost like the visible, invisible things. Uh, Cause they, you know, mm-hmm. they might not be there at the surface, but they are felt and they are seen and they, and they are known. Um, mm-hmm. And I, I love that notion that, all cultures have those things and how do you develop that that literacy or that other like way of of knowing um yeah i think uh i think it'll give the kids a chance to um i don't know what the right phrase would be maybe maybe like get them ready for um like moving outside of vietnam where there will be a little bit more diversity in who they would interact with. Um, I think uh, I just took a course on uh, intercultural communications for my master's degree. And um, we learned about, you know, differences in how people communicate. Um, And things that I learned in there was actually not surprising to me because um, I, I grew up going to an international school as well, where I was exposed to people from so many different countries that I'd kind of learned through experience how people from different countries communicate. And I think that that's a valuable experience if, um, if we're wanting our kids, again, to be global leaders, they need to know how to communicate with uh, people from different countries. And and, and why people act a certain way or uh, why people believe the things they believe in. And maybe it's deeply rooted in their culture and their religion. And so just giving them a chance to uh, look beyond, you know, the clothes and the food and the language, I think would be really cool. As you hopefully also get some rest this summer and then inevitably, mm-hmm. as, as all educators must do, start to kind of just rev up and, and start preparing again. Are there yeah. any resources for anything? We, we talked about a lot, you know, we, we talked about the idea of, uh, you know, 
looking again at issues of race, of LGBTQ plus issues with mental health. Is there anything that you're looking for resource wise that you're thinking, you know, I'm definitely going to make some time for this this summer because I want to prioritize it um, in the next academic year? Uh, yeah, I am trying to read books that focus on um, the LGBTQ experience for Asians um, because, I mean, I, again, that is something that I needed growing up and I'm looking at the demographics of the students I have at my school, which are primarily Vietnamese. Um, and, and being Asian comes with a lot of expectations from family. And I think um, uh, a lot of Asian queer kids have struggles with family issues. And I'm hoping that um, either, you know, reading, uh, I'm trying to read biographies and autobiographies, but I'm also trying to read um, young adult books and kids books that are written by um, by Asian authors that can speak authentically to that experience. Um, just so when I'm ready to have these conversations with the kids, um, that that's something that I can address. And also for myself too. Yeah, I, I'm really glad that you <laughs> mentioned that because, you know, again, with Pride Month coming to a close, this is, I think, the first Pride Month I ah. can remember where yeah. it wasn't kind of a centering of like, white gay men like i feel like typically uh -huh. that's that's really at like you know that's what people think pride yeah. is so that was yep. that was really great and i don't know if you caught that new um the half of it i think that's yes i did i did watch that i i don't know if you enjoyed it or not but i kind of was sitting there thinking like this is really revolutionary in terms of like an intersectional approach that also mm -hmm. doesn't necessarily focus on bullying or you know the protagonist doesn't get sick and die at the end um, uh-huh yeah and i think it also focused on um you know friendships mm -hmm. which i mean anytime i read um young adult novels that feature queer kids there's like this happily ever after of them finding love um which I like, I love reading happy stories, but at the same time, like, you know, if we're being a little more realistic, sometimes, I mean, it's, it's, you can't, like, it's not always easy to find somebody to be in a relationship with. And, and so, I, I think, you know, yeah. to, to make it seem like a YA story is going to end and it's like, done you know I think that identity work I mean like I'm 40 and yeah. I feel like my identity work continues but like let alone being 16 uh, I really yeah. I, these journeys are kind of like you know they're they're also it, interesting like bridge period in their life like it's not mm -hmm. okay sorted that all that all out um yeah yeah, mm -hmm. I, yeah I think it normalized like the fact that your identity is always changing and that you know um, you might identify as one thing today, but in a couple years, maybe you won't because you change or you learn new new terminologies and labels that fit fit you better. And so, yeah, it's kind of cool. 
Absolutely. Thank you so much for, for making time today. I really appreciated listening to you talk about so openly and so honestly, like all of the, the different things that you're trying to bring to your school and to your classroom. And I also really appreciate that you didn't paint a picture of it just being easy. You know, it, it isn't just go and have these conversations and everybody will be happy and informed. Um, it, it is really yeah. trying and it, it does take just so much emotional labor, but I also really appreciated you mentioning that you wanted to do more learning yourself um, because mm -hmm. I think that's the other danger is sometimes people will think I will jump blindly into, or, you know, I'll just, I'll be in, uninformed and think I can start this conversation. And I, I think in some ways that might be worse than um, not having the conversation at all. So I really like that you, that you mentioned all of the different complexities of, of wanting to really prepare to have necessary conversations. Um, I, I think mm -hmm. that's important for us to remember. And for school leaders to remember, you know, I think schools that give their staff more time to do this type of learning, I think, you know, richer conversations in the classroom. So just, you know, remembering that teachers are juggling with a lot of different things that they would like to do more of and better and initiate is important. Yeah, thank you for having me. This was, this was really, really fun and it made me think a lot. If you would like to connect with Kanako or any of our summer series guests, when you head over to allyed.org and you select our podcast, when you find reframing what it means to host difficult dialogues, you can find out more information about our phenomenal guests. Take care.